So if you would, please take out your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. It's on page 707 if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided. But go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 24. And over the past few weeks, we've been walking through this sermon series, taking a look at the end of the world according to Jesus. So we know that there is an end coming, and we're aware of that. And we wanted to look in this sermon series over the words of Jesus and what does Jesus say. So if you haven't been here with us for the past couple weeks, I'm going to give you a a quick recap so that we can get out to speed, and then we're going to jump in and continue our look at Jesus' words according to the end. And so if we look at Matthew chapter 23, Jesus has uh, spent some time as he's walking through the last week of his life here on earth before he goes to the grave and before uh, he comes back again. As he's walking to the cross, he spends time in Jerusalem. So he goes back into Jerusalem, and as he's in Jerusalem, he spends time among the Israelites. He spends time inside of Jerusalem and spends time in the temple. And as he's doing this, he is speaking words of judgment. So he comes in contact with the Jewish leaders, he comes in contact with the people in Jerusalem, and he comes in contact also with his disciples, and he makes a proclamation of judgment in chapter 23. Basically he says God's judgment is going to come on the Jews, God's judgment is going to come down on Jerusalem, and God's judgment is going to come down on the temple, and all of those things are going to change drastically forever. And as we think about that just for a moment, God's judgment, I want us to be reminded and I want us to be aware that the wrath of God, the judgment of God is a scary thing. Because God is holy, because God is right, because God is pure, anything that is not of that has to receive his judgment. And when God carries out his judgment on those that are unjust, it is not a beautiful thing. We can look through the Old Testament, we can look through the Bible, and we can see the recipients of God's wrath. It is very terrifying for those that receive it. We can look back to the the account of Noah when God wipes out all of humanity but saves Noah and his family because the ways of the world were wicked. We also can look to the story in the biblical account of Sodom and Gomorrah when we look and we see that God wipes out these cities because their lives and their acts were detestable to the Lord. And so we think about those things and we think about those images and we think about the judgment and the wrath of God and it is a terrifying thing for those that will receive the wrath of God. And so the disciples are here listening to this coming judgment and they are are keeping, I'm sure, in the back of their mind the the stories and the accounts of, of God's judgment in the past. And it causes them, we see the beginning of chapter 24, it causes them to raise some questions. They say, oh Jesus, oh Lord, when are these things going to happen? When is it that you're going to destroy your temple? When is your judgment going to come? And then they ask another question. At what time or what are the signs of your coming and the end of the world be? Now I think it's important for us to understand as we um, jump in this morning, we need to understand that where the disciples were coming from, their motives in their heart is very similar to the motives that we have here listening today. If you're here today and you are hearing that God is coming and he's going to judge the world for their sin, immediately our question should be, well, if the Lord is coming to judge, then where do, what's he going to do with me? Like, so I'm a person, I'm alive, I'm accountable to God, so what's God going to do to me? And, and ha- am I going to be able to escape the wrath of God? Is there any hope that I can have the joy and peace of God instead of the wrath of God? And I think that was going on in the hearts of the disciples. 
And so we see they come and they ask him these questions, and they're asking him based on this desire to avoid pain. Now, who here doesn't want to avoid pain? Anyone here like, I love pain, I want to go through hard times? Okay, good. So you're right there where the disciples are. But I think when Jesus, if we look at the answers Jesus gives them, is Jesus is telling his disciples that this is bigger than you. What I'm about to do is not about you, but you play a part in it. So even though you're going to walk through this challenging time, even though the kingdom of God is not going to come immediately, this is bigger than you, but you play a part. And so he's encouraging, but also helping redirect their minds. For so many times in our lives, our lives are so focused on us. We want to make sure that our lives are free from pain. We want to make sure that our lives are free from difficulties. But Jesus says, your lives are going to be free, not free from difficulty. Your lives are not going to be free from difficulties. But what's going on is bigger than you. So we see that the disciples come with some questions. And then Jesus begins answering these questions. And he begins answering them in a, from a prophetic perspective. From a prophetic perspective. So as we walked the past couple of weeks and we began looking, Jesus begins sharing from a, a, a prophetic perspective. And this is the perspective that he gives. He takes his disciples outside of Jerusalem and he takes them up to the top of the Mount of Olives. And as he's teaching from the Mount of Olives, he has the backdrop of the temple in mind as he's going to share a little bit about the destruction of the temple. But he also has the mountainside in mind too. So he talks about things that are near and talks about things that are far. And to kind of explain this perspective this morning, I brought along a picture. Can everyone see this? This is a picture of the Delaware countryside, okay? Um, a, a friend, Chuck, of mine took this picture, and, and it was posted here in Loma Coffee during one of the art loops, and I fell in love with this picture. And eventually he said, you know, because I loved it so much, he said, here, it's a gift to you. So I love this. It's, it's in my office. And I love this picture because it gives us a great perspective of what Jesus is talking about, especially as we take a look at prophecy. I'll carry it around this way. Can everyone see it now? Okay, good. Now, if you can't see it, picture in your mind now a countryside. So imagine as though Jesus is teaching from the near. So he's, he's saying here is what's going on. And if you look and your journey is going to be over here somewhere down the way, do you have a proper perspective of distance? It's kind of a challenge, right? Because you don't necessarily know if your destination is down there. You don't know the, the terrain. You just know that it's out there. So in some ways, Jesus is giving a perspective of things that are close. So you can see that if Jesus is saying, you know, in the next five years, the next two years, you're going to be here. You can see that there is some rolliness to the terrain, right? So you know that there's some challenges, which Jesus talks about in the beginning of chapter 24. He says there are going to be some challenges, there's going to be some signs of things that are to come. But then he's also speaking in mind of what is far away. And so sometimes when we talk about prophetic perspectives, by the time you look at distance, it becomes more flat. So I can talk about this over here, even though I don't know how long it might take me to get there. I have some, a picture in my mind of what that looks like. I can tell that it's there. It's foggy. It may be scary. The abominable snowman might be out there. Um, but it's some distance. So I'm going to leave this up here to help remind us and keep in mind that as Jesus is talking, he's talking about that which is near, but also talking about that which is to come or th- the 
distance at which it is to come. So Jesus begins answering their questions of things that are near, but also in mind of things that are far or things that are in the future. And in verses uh, 5 and and following, he gives us some general conditions. He says, this is the way it's going to look in the end or as we move towards the end. And these are some things that you'll experience too. There will false Christ will come. There'll be wars that will come. Nations will rise against nations. There'll be famines and there'll be earthquakes. And then he moves to give us some more specific conditions. He says, this time or what is to come is a time of tribulation there'll be persecution of believers lawlessness will increase the love of man will grow cold and the gospel will proclaimed so he spends a lot of time talking about those and then he begins giving us as we looked last week he gives us three signs he says the first sign that of my coming that will mark the 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 definite beginning of my coming will be this abomination of desolation he said, and he talks about that as, as defiling of the temple. Something will take place in the temple that will defile the temple and it will cause this change in history forever. And we see that as Jesus is speaking, he's directly talking about the destruction of the temple that is to come in 70 AD. And then he says also, as the sign number two, is that this will follow a time of tribulation. And tribulation will will ensue, and trials and difficulties, pain and affliction will continue to, to increase. And then as it comes to the end, there will be a time of great tribulation, such that the world has never seen, nor understood, or experienced before. And so Jesus gives us those signs. When you see these things happening, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see tribulation, know that the end is near. And then Jesus gives us sign number three. And that's where we're going to begin today. So look with me in verse 29 of chapter 24. Jesus begins saying, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from the heavens and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So he gives us a sign number three. The third sign is the coming of the Son of Man. There's a definite time where Jesus is going to return. And Jesus gives us a clear clarity of when that will be. Immediately after the tribulation. So he gives us a sense in which there's a sense of closeness and there's a sense at which this tribulation is in the future. But once you see this tribulation, once you experience this tribulation, know that Christ's return is even closer. That he's right there at the gate ready to return. And so we can see that he also gives us a description. He says, this is how it's going to be. This is what it's going to look like. And he gives us two clarifiers. The first one, he says, there will be heavenly disturbances. He says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens. And the heavens themselves will be shaken. Now imagine that for a moment. Just the imagery of that. That's an, a massive, amazing amount of imagery of Jesus' coming. And he's saying these things are going to take place in the heavens. The heavens themselves will be shaken. There'll be such a disturbance taking place in the heavens that you will not be able to miss it. And I believe that as Jesus is talking here, he's using apocalyptic imagery. And apocalyptic imagery is not just something that is just new to Jesus, but has been used in the past as God and his people have worked together, and God has in the past given cycles of judgment. Remember we talked about that last week, that there are cycles of judgment we see throughout Scripture. When God's people or people in the world rebel against God, God's judgment always comes, and there's always a sense of mercy at the same time. So we see that God has used this in the past. We can go back to the prophet Isaiah and see in Isaiah's time, in, in Isaiah chapter 13 
that Isaiah is prophesying about the coming destruction or the coming judgment that is going to befall Babylon. So I'm going to read to you Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. And I want you to look at verse 29 and following and see how closely they are related. So look, with you, look in your Bible as I read Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with the wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than the fine gold, and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place." At the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Do you see the correlation there? This is something that Isaiah spoke of many, many, many years ago. And Jesus almost pulls back to say what Isaiah talked about is what it also will be like in the end. There will be heavenly disturbances. And as Jesus is speaking here in Matthew chapter 4, or 24, he's using a mixture of literal and figurative language. And as he's talking about giving a sign or a picture of what is, is to come, you can see that he's giving some physical Um, some physical phenomena that's going to go on, but also some spiritual indication of what's taking place in the spiritual realm. So we see here as he's talking, Jesus says that this physical thing will take place, that no matter where you are in the world, you will see his coming. And you will also see that Christ is ruler over all creation. So if you're on the part of the earth, when Jesus comes where it's night... That which you use to guide the night, the moon, will be darkened and it will be gone. Or if you're at the the part of the earth where the sun is during the daytime and the Lord comes at that time, you will also see because the sun will not give its light. So there will be no mistake when Jesus comes again that he's coming. But then we also see there's a spiritual aspect of his coming we know that throughout times in history, especially as we look to the darkness that took place at the time of crucifixion, and, and that marked a change in history, that marked a change in God's rede- or a continuation of God's redemptive plan. For at the time, at the crucifixion, it says that the earth was dark. And that darkness shows uh, an, an indication of the conquering of the forces of evil. That Jesus did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of the world and dealt with the sin of man, and there was darkness. And then Jesus says, and his coming again, the next time that the earth will be completely dark, it will be his coming in a great way, and it will show that he has power over all, and he is ruler over all forces, even the forces of Satan himself. So there's a spiritual aspect that is going to take place in his second coming. So there'll be heavenly disturbances, but then we also see heavenly appearances. Look with me in verse 30 as he describes 
his coming. He says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. These heavenly appearances, we can see that after heaven is disturbed, the Son of Man will appear. He will come in the clouds with power and great glory. It kind of reminds me of Acts chapter 1, verse 6. As Jesus has, has been crucified in, at the end of the Gospels and then goes into uh, chapter 1 of Acts, we see that Jesus has come back to life. He spent time with his disciples, and he's getting ready to go back into heaven. And in the the account in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 and following, we see that Jesus takes his disciples back up to the Mount of Olives, the same place where he has this conversation with them now. He takes them back up there again, and they come to him with a question like they always do. And they said, Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of God? Is this the time in which what you prophesied last time we were here, is it going to happen now? Is, is this the time where it's taking place? And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times. He says, this is not, don't focus on the time. Don't focus on when, just know that I am. But he says, in the meantime, while you wait, live out the great commission with the power of the Holy Spirit. So live out the power, live out the commission with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9 of chapter uh, 1 of Acts, it says this, And when he had said these things, when he told them, given their final instructions, and as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing in the heavens, as he went, behold, two angels, or men, stood before him in white robes, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus, who was taken up into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So we can see that Jesus, in the lifetime of these disciples, they saw Jesus talk about the way his, he was going to come again, but they also saw his, the way that he was taken back up. He was taken up in a cloud as he ascended into heaven. And then they hear this promise again. The same Jesus is going to come from heaven in the same way that you saw him go up. So when he comes, he is going to come with power and great glory. If we think about the way that Jesus came the first time, we know that Jesus came uh, to earth in humble circumstances. He came as a baby in a manger. And he came and, and the world disregarded him. The world didn't know him. We have this problem here, or this promise here, that when he comes again, he is going to come in the proper way. This way, the second time he comes, he's going to come with proper glory, and he's going to come with proper power, and the world is going to know, and the world is going to see. And in this sign, we see a response. There's going to be two responses at Jesus' coming. Look with me in verse 30. I'm going to read 30 and 31 for us so that we can see the proper responses of those uh, that are uh, with the Lord and those that are far away from the Lord. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So we see that as Jesus returns, there will be some that mourn. From the tribes and from the nations of the earth, those, when they see Jesus coming, they will know that their wrath and their end is imminent. 
So this coming of Jesus will be marked by some with great mourning. They will know that they are aware of his judgment and they will seek to turn. They will seek to say, oh Lord, save me. We know that we are overwhelmed by our sin. We have rejected you. We have rebelled against you with everything in our hearts and everything in our beings. And now we want to turn. Or maybe some won't even want to turn. But there will be mourning for they know that their life and their end is set. So Jesus' coming will be great in mourning. But also Jesus' return will be great in the gathering. For as Jesus comes, he will send out his angels. And we see here there will be a gathering of all the elect. There will be a, a, a time in which the elect come and they are gathered by the angels. And they know that they are in the mercy and the grace and the love of God. And they will escape this final judgment. So we see that there are two sets of people in this world. There are those that will receive the wrath and the judgment of God and those that will be saved from this coming judgment. And so for those of us that are here this morning that have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, know that we have hope. We know that even though it's bad in this world, we will not receive the judgment of God, but we will receive his mercy. And for those that are here today, maybe you are in a place where you know that with your life you shake your fist at God and you say, there is no God, or God, I'm in control of my life. I don't want to give control of my life over to you. Know that if that's you, I want you to be aware that there is coming a time where you will be judged for your rebellion. So there's a response. But if we look at the, the next few verses from 32 to 35, I want us to look at a beginning of an application of Jesus' second coming. So he says that he's going to come. He says this is what it's going to be like. But now he moves into sharing some application. Like what should you begin doing about this? Or what should you do with this message of the coming of Jesus? And we can see that in these next three verses, he gives us a parable, he gives us a promise, and he gives us a proclamation. His parable that he gives us is in verse 32 to to verse 33. He says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. And in this process, if, we, if you've walked through this passage with, with us, you know that Jesus has continued to do a couple of things. And in some way, he's continued to say, these, look for these signs, look to see that I'm at work, but then also be aware of being led astray. Or as you see these, these horrible things happening in the world, don't be afraid, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, but at the same time, don't be deceived, but look. So it's like he's saying, look, but don't look, or, or look, but don't be deceived. Don't, don't try to continue to, to point that everything that happens in life, well, that means Jesus is coming. Like if this happens in the world, that means Jesus is coming. He's not saying that, he, so it's kind of like he's keeping these intention, intention the whole time. And I think what Jesus is doing here is I think he's giving us the overall message, especially he gives us this parable of the fig tree. His parable is teaching us this, that Instead of looking just for the signs, like trying to to trigger or to know exactly when he's going to return, for we know in in verse 36, if we read on, he says, no one knows the, the hour in which Jesus is coming, not even Christ himself. But he says, instead of trying to know when he's going to return, spend your life knowing God. Spend your time knowing God in everything that you are. For when you know God, then you will be able to endure the tribulation and the trials and and the pains of this life. And you'll also be able to be used by God to continue to help others be aware of his coming. So he gives us this great example. He gives us the fig tree. 
He says, look to the fig tree and learn this lesson. For we know that fig trees and other trees in the spring, at the early points of spring, they begin to change. Their branches begin to change. Instead of being um, pictures of things that are dead, what begins to happen, if you look closely, you'll see that buds will begin to grow. The ends of the sticks or the twigs will begin to bud. And in that budding, we know that there's a promise that spring is coming and that summer is near. And so what Jesus is saying is, is look to those things, see and be aware for if you happen to be going about your life and this has happened to me several times in my life as i've gone through the challenges and i get so focused in on my own life that sometimes i've missed spring like have you ever noticed that like sometimes maybe you you or maybe it happens in fall too where you're just so busy with life that you stop or you don't stop and you don't take a look at what's been taking place. And it's not until spring's already here or all the leaves are off the tree that you forget to look the beauty of fall, right? You're like, I've been so consumed with my life that I've, I've forgotten to look at the beauty that is around me. I think Jesus is saying, be aware of this. Let your eyes be attentive, be in my word, be in me, be knowing me so that you'll be perceptive to know that the end is near. Don't miss it. For when summer comes, it's already too late. So keep your eyes open, be receptive, and know that the time is near. So he gives us this parable. He says, be ready, be perceptive, be spending time in me, knowing me, so that you can be ready. But then he gives us this promise in verse 34. He says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, this is a promise, but this is a promise that has perplexed some biblical scholars. They see this promise as none of these things will not pass away until I come again. This generation will not pass away until these things come again. This confused some people. So I wanted to spend a few moments today giving us the promise and helping us understand what that means i believe that what jesus is saying here is the promise that he's giving his disciples that those that were alive what he's saying to them is that you who are alive today you will experience the desolation of of abomination the abomination of desolation that i talk about and you will experience the tribulation that he's talked about all of those things will occur in your lifetime that those things, they have a set beginning and a set end. And so we can see that as Jesus is talking about, I believe his promise to them is that all of the things that have taken place that he spoke about from Matthew chapter 24, verse 5 to 26, all of those things, he says, will happen in some way leading up to 70 AD where the temple is destroyed and or shortly after that. So he's giving them a clear marker. He's saying, so my promise to you is these things, verses 5 to 26, not a second coming, but all the things up to a second coming will take place before the destruction of the temple or shortly after that. And we have some ways that we can justify that. I want to share with you some nine preliminary events that took place in this time that Jesus talked about, that Jesus talks about here, gives us, and we can see that they took place up until the destruction of the temple and shortly after. So we see that Jesus promises there will be various uh, messianic pretenders or those that will call and they will claim to be uh, Christ. We see in Acts chapter 5, verse 36, there was a man named Thutius that, um, that we see was a man that pretended to be the Messiah. So we see that that 
has taken place. We see also that Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. And we know that there was a war of Israel and Rome that took place between the years of 66 and 67. And it was preceded by a much growing hostility between the two. There was a group of zealots among the Israelite nation that were seeking to overthrow the Roman government, and, and that took place. We can see that there were famines uh, that raged Judea, and it was predicted in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. And uh, those were dated to take place, and they did take place between 45 and 47 AD. We also know in the, uh, we can look in Colossians, and we can see even by the end of Revelation that earthquakes, earthquakes shook Laodicea in 60 to 61, and Pompeii itself was leveled by earthquakes. So earthquakes were to come and did come and were a part of that. We see also in from 1 Corinthians uh, 1 through 4 and 1 Corinthians 11, we can see from those that persecution was a part uh, of believers' lifestyles. The, the Acts even talks about, the book of Acts talks about how believers endure persecution because of their faith in Christ. We can also see that, that in the New Testament, there were several epistles that were written primary to warn the church of false teachers that would seek to dissuade those that followed Christ. We can see the Galatians was written for this case. Colossians was written to talk against false prophets and false teachers. First Timothy, Second Peter, and Jude were all written to talk and to warn the church against false teachers. But then we can also see that the concept of love growing cold, we can see that as, as Jesus talks about that is to come, it can, that can be characterized by the days of Nero, when Nero came in and persecuted the Christians and believers in the mid-60s. That, that, that time in history was felt as though that the love of man had grown cold. And finally, we see Paul says, with whatever rationale, in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 18, he's able to say that the gospel has gone out to all the known world, or all of the empire of Rome. So Paul is able to say, Jesus' promises were all set and all done. And then we see the destruction of the temple taking place in 70 AD in a time of desolation or a time of distress, more like a time of distress ensues. So as we look to that interpretation and we look to what Jesus is saying, all these things will take place in your generation, we can see that they did. They took place. And so now we can say that Jesus and his return, there's nothing that prohibits Jesus from coming back at any time. So that's his promise. His promise is that he's coming back and it can happen at any time. But then we can see that he leaves in verse 35 before continuing on. He leaves us today with a proclamation. He gives us this proclamation. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I believe Jesus is giving his uh, disciples here some instructions. He's, he's helping them remind themselves to keep their lives in perspective of eternity or keep their lives in perspective of the end. And he says, all of these things will pass away. Heaven will pass away. Earth will pass away. So he's saying, be prepared for this. Be aware of this. And don't hold on to the things of this world. Don't make your life or build your life so much so that you're holding on to the things of this world that when they're taken away, that your faith in Christ is destroyed. He's reminding us these things of this world, they won't be able to save you and they won't be able to satisfy you. But God has given us these things, temporary things, to remind us of the goodness and the grace of God. Never should we hold more to the blessings than we hold to God. 
But then he says, he, so this proclamation is there's this temporary thing, but then there's this eternal thing. And he says, the eternal is what you should hold on to. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So as we live in this turbulent, tumultuous time, as we live and we walk this path of pain, what Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us here today, is the one thing that remains, the one thing that we can hold on to is the word of God. Grab hold of the word of God, grab hold of the promises of God, and allow them to be what holds you through these challenges and this, unchanged, or this changing world. So I want us to, I want us to end this morning Answer the question, so now what do we do? What, what, what should I do? What I want to be reminded of this morning is, first thing, is difficult times are a reality. We live in a world where it's going to be difficult. Realize that Jesus has not promised that life is going to be easy. But Jesus has promised until he comes, we live in a world that is full of sin and we ourselves sin. And because of that, there are myriad of consequences. We may get cancer, we may die, we may lose our job. All of these things happen in this fallen world and we have to live with the consequences of this fallen world. And so he says, be prepared for that. Be prepared mentally and be prepared for that spiritually. It helps us, Jesus is helping us avoid being disillusioned by living in this fallen world. For if we have in our minds that, that God is this way, that God is good, God is gracious, and God is great, and we see God in, as, as just God is a good gift giver, if that's our only picture of God that we have, then when God doesn't give us good gifts, what does that do to our faith in God? We can see this is the way the world is continuing to level accusations against God because they say, God, because there's death in the world, because there's Ebola in the world, because there's famines in the world, you can't be a good God. God says, I am good. I'm good even in the midst of all of those things. So for those, he says, be prepared. It's not going to be easy, but this helps you avoid being disillusioned. So what do we do? Be aware of difficult times. The second thing is we must be aware of the impending judgment. Sin has consequences, and God is going to judge sin. Now, the judgment of God and the coming impendingness of the judgment of God should lead us to repentance. In the time that we have now, it should lead us to repent. So if you're here today and you've heard for the first time that God is coming in judgment, it should lead you to repent. It shouldn't lead you to anger towards God because God is the one who has made you. You owe your existence to God. And so therefore, he has the right to set the rules. And so instead of shaking your fist at God, realize that he is going to judge you for not following in line with what he has said. And so therefore, you have time to repent. Now is the time to repent. But also because there's this impending judgment, it should cause us as believers to not live in our holy huddles, to live in and of ourselves, knowing that we are freed from the punishment of God. This impending judgment should cause us and lead us to have compassion on those that are suffering. Instead of hearing about the the dangers and and the treacherous of the world out there, instead of seeking to spend so much time making sure that we're safe, we should use this, the pain of the world, as an opportunity to engage the world with the gospel and the truth of God. So as a believer, though we live in this fallen and broken world, I encourage you, take the words of God and just continue to trust in Him and to follow Him. And continue to live for Him with all of your might and with all of your life. Let's pray. Father, 
we thank you for your words and we thank you for your truths. And Father, we thank you that you are coming again. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be prepared. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know you, but desires to know you, Father, I pray that you continue to move into their spirit, move in their spirit, lead them to a place where they call out and repent, where they say, I know I'm a sinner, but I need you, Jesus. And may they call on Jesus and be saved. And Father, for those of us that are here that have experienced your grace, that have come to the place where we've surrendered our lives, Father, I pray that we would come again today at a place of surrender. Father, let us surrender our fears to you this morning. Father, help us to surrender our anger because we live in this fallen world and things don't go our way. If we're angry this morning, allow us just to surrender that anger to you. But Father, I also just pray that today that we would be people that resolve our lives to follow you, to know you and to follow you and to follow you in complete and total obedience. But today, God, we just pray that you would continue to help us walk closer to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.